Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Back with you now for a UBS On Air exclusive, Thoughts on the Market and Macro Environment with Jeffrey Gunlock, the Chief Executive Officer, Chief Investment Officer, and Founder of Double Line Capital. Today's special conversation will cover a lot of ground across a wide range of timely macro topics that have been moving markets as well as offer perspective on monetary policy and positioning guidance across multiple asset classes. Before we get into our conversation, I do want to provide some background on Jeffrey Gunlock. Jeffrey is recognized as an expert in bonds and other debt-related investments. In 2011, he appeared on the cover of Barron's as the new Bond King. In 2012, Bloomberg Markets magazine named him one of the 50 most influential. In 2013, Jeffrey was named Money Manager of the Year by Institutional Investor. In 2015, Bloomberg Markets Magazine again named Jeffrey as one of the 50 most influential. Jeffrey is a graduate of Dartmouth College, summa cum laude, with degrees in mathematics and philosophy. So with that, Jeffrey, it's great to be with you today. Thank you, as always, for spending some time with our financial advisors here at UBS and very much looking forward to our conversation Thank you, Dan. It's uh, become a tradition, sort of this back-to-school call early in the football season, so I always look forward to it. Absolutely, and I know you're an avid Buffalo Bills fan, so happy to talk a little football towards the end of the discussion today, though a lot to cover, a lot going on in the markets and the macro environment. Perhaps we can begin big picture, take a few moments to touch on the U.S. economy. I'm curious, Jeffrey, to hear your thoughts on how conditions here in 2023 have evolved relative to maybe your expectations back at the start of the year? And what would you say are the prospects at this point for a recession to occur as we look towards the year ahead? 2023 has been uh, a year of a little bit more persistent economic growth than a lot of particularly monetary-based economists were expecting. And we've been living through a very difficult environment because of all of the dislocations that have occurred over the past three and a half years now with the lockdown and all the government money and all the uh, lack of payment of rent and, and student loans and all of that, having really distorted the data. And uh, the people that were probably the most uh, off on their 2023 forecasts were the more monetary-oriented economists, those that look at, say, M2 growth, for example, year over year. Uh, it was, it's been negative uh, year over year. And so those types of economists were, were expecting a recession really in the first half of 2023. But uh, based, due to these distortions, a lot of the data that we saw uh, two, two and three years ago really has to be put in more of a broader time window context. You know, it's true that the M2 growth is negative uh, this year. But what, what that misses is if you look at, say, a two-year a growth or a three-year growth, it's still very, very high. And in our in our roundtable prime that we do in the first part of January, we had a lot of discussion about uh, M2 growth, and uh, it was countered with th- those that were more optimistic on the economy were talking about the, the continued amount of money sloshing around. Even though M2 wasn't growing anymore, there's the, it's still at a very high level versus a few years ago. And that's also true of things like the PPI, which is now uh, at about 2%, it actually dipped uh, into a negative number. But if you look at both the actual level of M2 and the actual level 
of the PPI, it's true that it's not, they're not really going up anymore. But if you compare them to a couple, three years ago, they're still extremely elevated. And so this cycle has been playing out on a sort of a, a, a time-lapse type of a basis. But I think that when we look at the leading indicators, which remain negative, substantially negative, both on a six-month annualized basis and a 12-month annualized basis running at about negative eight, when we look at uh, consumer confidence in uh, comparing sort of present conditions to the future, that has something of a recessionary look. We're, st we're starting to see an awful lot of uh, volatility in consumer borrowing. It had been non-existent a couple of years ago because everybody got all that government money. And then uh, it started to really increase. And I think what we're looking at now is starting to be a turning point, maybe in the next six months or so, where the consumer, I think, is going to be tapped out. I think they've been borrowing too much money. I think the interest rate increases are really going to start biting both the consumer and uh, certainly small businesses. I mean, three years ago, small businesses were able to borrow at 4% uh, for a CNI loan, and, and now it's 9%. And if the Fed raises uh, again, which is not going to happen this week, I mean, the odds are basically zero in the bond market. The Fed's going to raise interest rates. But every single time they raise interest rates, you know, you if you have revolving credit, you're looking at interest rate increases. And we all know that monetary policy works with long and variable lags. But this tightening cycle, this inverted yield curve, which has been in place now for quite a while, uh, and it's starting to show the look of, of recession, I would uh, advise everybody to take a look at I didn't create this chart. One, I did a webcast last week, and one of my uh, uh, frequent listeners sent me a, a note because I was talking about the length of the yield curve inversion and the fact that we got to those types of levels that are absolutely a, a tell of a coming recession on a delayed basis, but a coming recession. Uh, but it's when it starts de-inverting that you really are on mega recession watch. When it first inverts, you've got to be on a warning. But when it starts de-inverting, uh, then you really have to be looking out for a recession. Now, we got to about 110 basis points inverted between the two-year and the 10-year. And uh, now we're down at about 70 to 75 basis points. So we're not really quite there yet on the signal, but if you look at the 30-week moving average, this is the chart that this uh, listener uh, sent me. I thought it was really excellent. If you look at the 30-week moving average of the uh, twos tens, and then just run that with the daily or the weekly uh, twos tens, when it crosses over, so when it de-inverts by crossing above uh, its 30-week uh, moving average, that's been a very, very good real-time signal of recession. We're not there yet, but all these things are starting to come into prospect. Also, the unemployment rate, uh, the monthly unemployment rate has crossed over its 12-month moving average. That puts us on a recession warning as well. Uh, if it crosses above its three-year moving average, a 36-month moving average, that historically has been almost a perfect indicator that you are now in a recession. We're not there yet. But we predict, uh, based upon the trends that are in place, that that crossover is going to happen in the first quarter of 2024. So I think the odds of recession in the, in the first half or the second quarter, anyway, of 2024 are, really need to be respected. And so I think, I think that uh, we've got many of the conditions in place. The, the one thing uh, that's really left is this, this is always the case, is the unemployment uh, situation uh, is, is not yet there. But I'm starting to see an awful lot of uh, 
Bloomberg uh, top go types of headlines that say, you know, Goldman Sachs laying off people, other firms laying off people. I just feel like uh, the uh, layoffs are going to be coming uh, in the first quarter of next year or later uh, in the last part of this year. So I, I think the odds of recession are pretty high. And uh, for that reason, it seems uh, pretty uh, difficult to be really fond of uh, the valuation of, of the stock market at this point. And we've gone full circle from where we were at the beginning of 2022, where uh, bond yields were pinned to the floor. Uh, stocks looked uh, very overvalued on a price-to-earnings ratio, on a price-to-book, on a CAPE ratio. But as overvalued as stocks were versus their own uh, history of valuation at the first part of 22, they were uh, unbelievably, they were cheap to bonds. The 10-year Treasury was so ridiculously low versus the coming inflation uh, problem that uh, as overvalued as the S&P 500 was, I said in my Just Markets webcast a year and a half ago or a year and three quarters ago now, that bonds were even richer than stocks. And that's based upon yield and it's based upon um, you know, uh, the inflation outlook at that time. But that's completely reversed. The yield on the S&P 500 uh, at the beginning of 2022 was double the yield on Treasury bonds, incredibly, as overvalued as they were. But that's completely reversed with this huge rate increase of, you know, 525 or 550 basis points from the Fed. Plus, don't forget the quantitative tightening, where the balance sheet was a little over $9 trillion, and now it's below $8 trillion. And if you put that in to what they used to call the shadow Fed funds rate, the actual accumulation of quantitative tightening plus the multiple hundreds of basis points Fed hikes uh, equates to about a 730 basis point tightening if you had not done QT but instead just manipulated the Fed funds rate it would have equated to a 730 basis point increase. And if you put this into context, this type of tightening, this is the most aggressive tightening we've had in like 40 years. And uh, so I, I think that investors should be getting much more conservative. And I, I continue to uh, favor a relatively uh, a balanced portfolio. When I say that, I don't mean 60-40. I mean maybe only about 20 or 30 percent, 25 or 30 percent equities and the same quantity or slightly more of bonds. And at this point, a lot of people are uh, using the, the uh, phrase T-bill and chill because the highest yield out there is the six-month T-bill at five and a half. But I don't really recommend that. I, I think you're better off in two- and three-year live bonds uh, where you can buy in, the, in parts of the credit market where there are yields available of 7%, 8% without taking a lot of credit risk if you buy like one- and two-year average life things in, say, high, high-quality uh, CMBS markets. So there's some really attractive things going on in the bond market versus stocks, such a stark contrast to just two years ago. So I am looking for a recession. I do think that uh, the Treasury market should be part of people's portfolios because of the ability to have that kind of risk offset that we used to talk about 10 years ago which disappeared with the Fed suppressing interest rates. There was no chance of a profit on long-term treasuries uh, two years ago. I mean, they, they got down to a yield of 1%. So how are you going to – instead, they've had a 50% drawdown. The 30-year treasury bond is down 50% from its high-water mark, incredibly. Uh, so it's, an, it's, it's like a major equity bear market type of drawdown. But that means it can go back up in price. Uh, finally, and I'll stop here, also – 
the agency mortgage-backed security market, again, a high-quality market, government-guaranteed, uh, is at a price of about 86 cents on the dollar, which means that there is no risk. You know, the risk for my 40-year career on mortgage-backed securities has been you were always in a refinancing uh, situation because rates fell for 40 years on a secular basis, but that's, that ended. So now there's no refinancing risk. In fact, you, you have probably the most, uh, um, it, it is the most unusual thing where the average mortgage rate that people are paying on the mortgages they've taken out in past years, which is the bulk of, of the existing mortgage supply, the average uh, rate on that is about three and a quarter percent. Whereas the mortgage rate today, if the Freddie Mac mortgage rate's seven and a quarter, and the bank rate is seven and a half. So these, the average mortgage uh, borrower is 400 basis points out of the money. And so that means that there's none of this negative convexity or refinancing risk or all these sorts of problems that we've had to deal with for 40 years. And yet the spread, the actual incremental yield on mortgages is historically quite high. So you have one of the least risky situations and one of the best reward situations. And that's another total flip from two years ago. Two years ago with the Fed doing QE and buying mortgages all the time, mortgages were the most overvalued in history uh, versus treasuries, and that's completely reversed. So, Dan, let me, let me stop there. I know I've, I've put a lot out there, and I'll let you uh, drive, drive the car which any direction you want to go with what I've already said. Yeah, J- Jeffrey, that was fascinating, and thank you very much for providing your thoughts and that overview. Quite a lot there we can follow up on. I do want to revisit asset allocation a bit later in the conversation. Before we do so, just given the timing of our conversation, we're speaking today on September 19th, so a day prior to the Fed rate decision, which we will receive tomorrow. At this point, how do you see the Fed interpreting the data, putting yourself in their mind or attempting to? How do you see the Fed acting from here to further combat inflation while also balancing the risk of over-tightening? And our chief investment office sharing your expectations that we won't see a hike tomorrow, though what might the balance of the year have in store? Jay Powell has been, uh, until very recently, and this is an important uh, 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 deviation, I think, but until recently, he's been resolute, really for a year. It started with Jackson Hole in 2022, where he was became very much of a, I'm going to get inflation down to two, uh, and it's okay if we have some economic weakness due to that. He's been singing that song uh, pretty solidly for a year. And I actually give him credit for that, at least not being uh, volatile and therefore somewhat confusing. But uh, interestingly, uh, about a week ago, there was a Wall Street Journal article, which always seems to be kind of the leak source. There was a, the source that gets the leak uh, from the Fed. There's that one reporter that seems to always get the, the story. And uh, it started to say sort of like the Fed might be thinking a little bit more about the economic weakness than they had been in the past. And, of course, the bond market believes that with uh, the pricing at the short end of the yield curve being basically zero chance of a hike tomorrow. And there's about a half, about about a 50-50 shot, so predicting maybe half a hike uh, between now and year end. I I don't think we're going to get that. Uh, I, I think I, th- I think the Fed is is really taking a, a wait and see attitude. The thing that really needs to happen, though, for the Fed to once and for all really stop raising interest rates is we need the new favored measure, 
and this has been around for about a year as well, of Jay Powell, this, this PCE uh, core, you know, X, so it's X food and energy and also X shelter. So you're getting down to a pretty small fraction of the economy. Certainly a lot of people, food, energy, and shelter is their whole life in terms of inflation. But that's the one that is not improving. The so-called super core PCE has been absolutely sideways now for two years at about four to four and a half, I think it's a 4.7 right now, which is actually a local high for the past uh, year or year and a half. And since Jay Powell has singled that out, as something of a significant inflation indicator, really it needs to start start joining everything else in declining. And that certainly has not happened yet with the most recent reading being at a local high. But when you look at CPI, headline CPI has actually dipped down below 3%. Now it's ticked back up above. And it's probably going to stay above 3%, maybe 3 to 3.5%, we think, uh, for the next several months. Uh, and, and then it, it should come down based upon our inflation model, which is simplistic but has been helpful. And so it, it shouldn't really be that much of an inflation issue. If you go through all the inflation statistics, I mean, PTI is right at 2%. Uh, or CPI for the past 20 years. You know, the Fed talks about inflation averaging. The core CPI for the past 20 years has averaged 2%. I mean, they've actually achieved over a, a long-term backward-looking viewpoint that 2% rate. So the thing that's, uh, that's, that has to change is we need that, that super core uh, PCE to come down. And now oil is a little bit concerning. Oil obviously drives inflation. I, I uh, drive past uh, my, my gas station every morning that's on PCH, and the price of gas was about 5.50 a gallon uh, a month or, or six weeks ago. And this morning when I drove by, I, I had to do a double take. The price of gas, and I, I buy the high test, the 91, was $7 a gallon. It's up $1.50 in like six weeks. So we got to worry a little bit about that. And then there's service inflation, which is the, the entire source of uh, headline uh, CPI inflation is, is, is services. And now we have this anecdotal evidence about wages. You know, the UAW is on strike, and uh, the, uh, they've been offered a 20% pay increase over a number of years, and they want more like 50%. And we saw UPS get some pretty big uh, increases. And when you're talking about uh, UPS, I mean, you're talking about something that filters through our entire, you know, all this delivery at home economy, uh, that, that's pretty significant. So that, that's, that's what's concerning. Uh, it's out there. But I do think that uh, once you do get the turn in unemployment, I think you're going to see uh, wages uh, start to relax. And I, I, I feel like there's going to be uh, very little, if any, wage pressure in 2024. I, I feel like there's going to be more layoffs. I talked about the anecdotal evidence. I just feel like now that we are three years after the lockdowns or entering the lockdowns, I think businesses are really rethinking. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of culling of labor forces. When you do work from home, you, you, I learned a lot about who was really not doing any work. And after three years, you're sort of like, you know, uh, maybe we need to uh, upgrade the position here. Uh, and, and so I, I, I think that inflation is, is still on the Fed's mind, but we need that super core to, to roll over, and, and it hasn't happened yet. So until that happens, I, I don't think the Fed's going to ease. So I, I think we'll need to see that, that recession come, 
and and uh, we'll, then we'll see unemployment go up, wage growth will ebb, and my expectation again is that this all kind of gels together in uh, the second quarter of 2024 or so. Just on the topic of risk, since we're talking about it, uh, how are you thinking about the government shutdown negotiations in Washington? We also have the U.N. General Assembly in progress here in New York this week, a lot of geopolitical risk out there. How are you thinking about those considerations? Well, it's clearly a lot of geopolitical risk when you see, uh, you know, Putin uh, doing photo ops with Xi. Uh, That's pretty bad. And of course, you know, it seems like a lot of United States allies of the past are drifting away. Uh, India, you know, the BRICS had their their get together. Uh, Turkey, uh, no longer really an ally of the United States, etc. So that, that's 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 really serious. And um, as we as we head towards the presidential election, um, I think given the posture that the current administration has taken, uh, I, I think that it's unlikely that we would have a full-throated response to to aggression of our adversaries. And so I worry that that could be an issue uh, in the months ahead as well. Obviously, growing uh, geopolitical angst, I don't think, is positive in any way, except for maybe uh, arms manufacturers uh, in the stock market. So I think I think that's that's a real issue. Uh, so yes, and I think that's filtering also to the higher oil prices. So there's a little bit there's a little bit more cross currents going on uh, now. Like back in March, there was very widespread consensus on imminent uh, sort of recession. And that went away when uh, we had, you know, the the SVB. It was there. It was focused around SVB. But then the regional banking problem didn't really have much of a a contagion. It it just was confined to those that owned a bunch of long bonds that had a 50 percent drawdown. Uh, So that's calmed down. And so now it seems like there's less unanimity of, of recession uh, but the the awareness of these geopolitical problems should be on everybody's mind. Yeah, there's definitely a lot out there to keep one up at night. I, I do want to, in the few moments we have remaining, I, I do want to spend some time on asset allocation. So here at the UBS Chief Investment Office, one of our messages in focus being a buy quality bonds. So we do maintain a preference for bonds over equities. Could you expand a bit from your prior comments earlier in the conversation about where you're finding opportunity across fixed income at the moment, what looks most attractive? I've gone into this sort of uh, uh, non-traditional asset allocation recommendation really for a couple of years now, and it, it's varied over time, but I'm, I'm pretty much back, right back to where I was uh, about two years ago, uh, having having altered it quite a bit last year, where I was much more interested in, in low-quality low bonds about a year ago. The spreads were so wide and rates on treasuries were about where they are today about a year ago on the 10-year. The 10-year was about four and a quarter. It's about 4.35 today. Uh, but I'm, I'm less interested in the lower quality bonds today. I'm, I'm more interested in sort of the high quality bonds for about 25% of the portfolio. I would say about 25% in the 10-year longer treasury bonds, simply because they have profit potential uh, to help be a ballast in your portfolio against uh, some of the positions. I don't recommend high-risk positions at all right now. I recommend some risk positions. So 25% longer-term treasuries, where if you have that recession coming, 
you, you can get gains of, of 30% on long-term bonds. I mean, hey, I said before, the 30-year Treasury bond is down 50%. I wouldn't be so, uh, I wouldn't be so sure that it's going back up to where it's high watermark at a 1% yield. That would be a 100% gain in price from where you are today, incredibly. I don't expect that, but I think you can get halfway there. Uh, so you, you could get a 30, 40, 50% gain on the 30-year bond and you know half of that or so on a 10-year bond. So I think that should be part of a portfolio. I used to say 25% cash. I don't think cash is where you want to be. I think it's cash-ish. You know, I, I mentioned you know DCMB or just a low-duration bond fund or uh, for now, uh, floating rate double B, not the low stuff, double B credit of floating rate bank loans, which ha- have yields on them now of 8%, and they float, so there's no interest rate risk. So you, you can get income out of um, you know double B type of or triple B fixed income. You get income of 7 8.5%, and uh, sleep at night very, very well. So I think that should be 25% of the portfolio. And then I would say uh, 25% in stocks. And uh, there, I, I don't think you want the, you know, the, the S&P 7 that have driven the entire S&P year to date. They seem back in euphoria land. I, I think you might want a value over growth at this point. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I want small cap uh, value, but mid cap or large cap value, I think should be the 25%. And of that 25, I would also uh, suggest uh, – you know, having some of that in non-U.S. stocks. And uh, there, I, I'm not really that fond of Europe as I was a couple of years ago, though it has performed fine. I certainly don't really want emerging markets yet because the emerging market currencies are just so weak. Uh, they just they just never, ever rally. Uh, they just persistently weak. And you need those currencies to rally against the dollar, which I don't think is going to happen until the recession comes. So I think it's a little early on that. For, for the long-term position, I, I'm still a big believer in India for a, for a generational type of a hold, and so that can be part of the stock portfolio. And now, for the first time in a long time, I'm, I'm back to wanting to put 25% into commodities. The commodity, DCOM, has crossed its moving average, 200-day moving average, in a way that I find somewhat convincing at this point, having been on the defensive for a couple of years. So, uh, you know, I, I think you could open gold or just the BCOM index for 25% of the portfolio. So it's a really balanced portfolio with, with a lot of it being in fixed income, you know, 25% in treasuries and 25% in credit. So half of the portfolio would be income generating. And, and that, that part of the portfolio, you know, it, 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 you put it together, you, you get like 7%. So you have the inverse of where you were in the year 2022. Stocks are very overvalued versus bonds. It's, it's undervalued as they were versus treasuries. Beginning 2022, they're, they're, it's now exactly a mirror image. They're, they're as, as overvalued versus bonds today as they were undervalued at that moment in time. And so that's, that, that's how I think you put together an income-generating portfolio with not a lot of risk in it. Uh, but uh, certainly you should be able to, at least, to absolutely keep your head above inflation with that short duration uh, uh, fixed income allocation. Jeffrey, thank you for the transparency and the guidance there when it comes to positioning a lot of considerations. We just have a couple of minutes remaining, though, perhaps on the lighter side of things. Quickly want to get your thoughts on how the first two weeks of the NFL season have played out. I know your bills currently one and one on the season, though. Any reflections on what you've seen thus far and what the balance of the season might have in store? 
Yeah, you know, week one is always, I always think that the gambling lines, and I don't gamble on anything, but uh, you, I watch the lines simply as, as, as out of interest. But I always think that the gambling lines for week one should all be pick them because anything can happen week one. You just no, Nobody knows what's going to happen. I'll, I'll never forget years ago, week one, the Bills who have been losing to the Patriots like every game for years and years, uh, week one beat the Patriots with Tom Brady 31 to nothing. And it, it, interestingly, the last week of the season, they met again, this time at Foxborough, and the Bills lost 31 to nothing, exactly the same score, but, but uh, the other team winning. Week one, just you never know what's going to happen. Week two, you, you start to get some insight. But what's really seems to be happening with increasing, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, with increasing frequency is these, these stars keep going out early in the season. I mean, Aaron Rodgers lasted four plays. I mean, Aaron Rodgers, you know, uh, New York Jets experiment lasted four plays. And then you had Chubb go out last night, and Joe Burrow is out. And these are teams, you know, the Jets were supposed to be a contender. The Bengals are supposed to be a contender. You know, uh, Cleveland was on the rise, supposedly. Well, those teams are just cooked with these stars going out. So injuries always play a big role, but... But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Bills fan. We, we, we've uh, been in a good place for the past few years. Never really got over the hump. That 13 seconds game was the real killer uh, that kept us out of the, uh, out of the Super Bowl. But uh, I'm, I'm still quite optimistic on the Bills. It'll have to do with, with injuries, of course. But I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to a really exciting uh, football season this year. So it should, should be fun. Uh, and uh, I'm going to the, the Miami at Buffalo game. I hope the weather is, as you said uh, in the preamble of this call, just, I hope it's a glorious fall day. October 1st in Buffalo uh, has good probability of being uh, just a, a, a real uh, one of the better days of the year. Looking forward to it. Definitely. Good news is a lot of football ahead of us. As a Giants fan, I'm not quite sure what to think as of yet. It's been a tale of two teams, but we'll see what the season has in store. Though again, Jeffrey, very generous with your time and your guidance. Thank you very much for spending the time today with our financial advisors. Always a pleasure having you on and hope we can do this again soon. You bet. Okay, thanks, Dan. Good luck, everybody, with the rest of the year. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. It does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any specific product or service. UBS does not provide legal or tax advice, and we would recommend listeners to obtain appropriate independent professional advice. Some of the views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Group AG or its affiliates. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. These services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS Group AG and is a member of FINRA and SIPC. UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned.